Well, the Basement Astrologers, coming to you live from the beautiful Pacific Northwest in Puyallup, Washington and Seattle, Washington. It's March 15th at 11.37 a.m. Pacific Coast time. With me is Giulio Pellegrini, an astrologer from Seattle, Washington. You can say hi, Giulio. Hey, everyone. How's it going? He's here uh, because Meredith met him at an Oprah retreat. Apparently, he was the talk of the entire retreat. He's got some fascinating views on using Saturn throughout the chart. So first, we're going to get to know him, and then we are going to learn all about Saturn. Uh, so whenever we have a new astrologer on, there's a question I love to ask, and that question is, what's your favorite planet? Oh, wow. Okay. Uh, well, first, let me just say thanks for having me. I, this is really awesome. Um, this is my first a podcast ever, my first interview ever, so I'm really excited. Um, and um, let me see. So I think Uranus is my favorite planet by far. Um, yeah. Uh, Uranus uh, is prominent in my chart. It's square to my nodes and conjunct my moon. So it, it, it yeah. <laughs> so it gives me... Um, you know, it's been giving me some gifts and and breakthroughs and some some change. You know, uh, I'm a Scorpio, so I'm not afraid of transformation and change. It's been a big feature of my life, and I feel like Uranus has helped me kind of break through and break down some of those uh, some of the stuckness that you that Scorpio could get into. Um, so yeah, I'd say Uranus. What a great answer. I'm hope my goal is that at some point I'm going to get through all the planets with the astrologers. That's what I'm shooting for. <laughs> all right. So <clears throat> we're just going to get to know each other a little bit here. Uh, we haven't met other than just the basic introduction um, that Meredith gave me about um, who you are and how you knocked everyone's socks off at the retreat. How did you get interested in astrology? Oh, wow. Okay. Well, my grandmother was interested in kind of the wacky stuff. Um, she was, you know, she, she was a, a young ag adult in the 50s, in the 1950s, when all that kind of stuff was kind of bubbling up in the, in the pop culture, you know, like UFOs and, um, you know, the Twilight Zone and handwriting analysis and um, uh, kind of like the um, mind control and all of that kind of stuff from the 1950s. And she was kind of, she took an interest in that, was steeped in it, a little bit and I would see uh, like ho those horoscope scrolls that you could buy at the supermarket when I was a kid and I was kind of fascinated by that mm -hmm. and I was just interested in everything and curious about the universe I, I was interested in astronomy and for forever I thought I wanted to be an, an astrophysicist oh uh, yeah yeah I thought I wanted to I wanted to work at the JPL lab in Pasadena you know that's funny Meredith loves uh, loved Astronomy too is like her entry point. Okay, yeah, I feel like that's probably true for a lot of astrologers. You know that yeah, you, you look up into the sky and you wonder. Um, turns out I wasn't awesome at math, um, <laughs> and I was much more of an artist. That'll do it. Yeah, yeah. So, so lots of twists and turns, and um, uh, and at some point I I just got much more interested in it. I in, in um, it started. I became curious about myself, and and I saw that astrology could answer a lot of those questions that I had about myself and help me make sense of the world, make sense of the cosmos. I'm always someone with like really big questions, you know, like why are we here? What's the meaning of life? You know, things like that. I really like um, in your explanation, uh, thinking of the image of your uh, Uranus Moon conjunction in your natal, that idea of like needing the weird stuff. I feel comfort, you know, and hearing that uh, your grandma was into it. I know my grandma loved the tabloids. She lived in a very small town in central Minnesota, but she always had the star. I don't even remember all their names. The kind of thing like uh, on the front cover would be Bat Boy Rescued from Cave type of thing. Oh, yes. Oh, I remember those. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's really interesting. I never thought I never thought of um, that the weirdness would be a comforting factor with Uranus and the moon. Yeah. Hmm. Thanks for that. That's that's a good insight. Astrology certainly comforts me. <laughs> uh, so um, just from some of your social media stuff, I noticed a couple things. So first, um, I noticed the term evolutionary astrology a couple places. Um, is that 
something you identify yourself as an evolutionary astrologer? Uh, I don't. I don't uh, identify exclusively as an evolutionary astrologer. Um, I am. No, I wouldn't say that. But evolution is, as a broad term, is something that I believe in, and I'm not. And, and I'm familiar with evolutionary astrology and use some of its principles in what I do. I would say that I'm more of a uh, of a psychologically based astrologer that uses, you know, a lot of different tools at my disposal. I, I'm curious and interested in a lot of different things, and so I try to pull in what uh, makes sense to me and kind of try to synthesize it. And evolutionary astrology is definitely one aspect, uh, especially the nodes and Pluto. Um, and uh, yeah, but strictly, strictly, I'd say no, that I'm not a solely an evolutionary astrologer. Okay. Uh, I also noticed in your presentation that you were nice enough to send over um, that you use the term esoteric astrology in there. Um, can you explain a little bit about what that means? Oh, sure thing. So yeah, that's an interesting word, uh, esoteric, especially esoteric astrology. Uh, I mean, esoteric really just means secret or it means uh, rarefied knowledge, knowledge that isn't readily available. And I think that term is it, that term is so dense and it tends to turn people off and it's a little bit kind of a scary word like esoteric or it's a word like occult, you know, and uh, in, in certain communities, the world, uh, the word occult is a scary word, even though it, it, yeah. it also all, all it means is, you know, to see. Um, so esoteric, yeah, I mean, eso, uh, the term esoteric astrology and is tied to the uh, theosophist movement in the early part of the 20th century. And I would say that I come from that lineage. If I if I identified with anything most strongly, it's probably the esoteric movement from the early part of the 20th century. Um, and and in that regard, it esoteric astrology is kind of specific, um, and it uh, relates to the work of Alice Bailey and and some of the other uh, theosophists. Uh, uh, Alan Leo, yeah, Alan Leo was a huge, uh, you know, theosophist who really, uh, almost single-handedly saved astrology in a way uh, when it was kind of, you know, at its nadir. <clears throat> We've talked a little bit on the pod about that theme of kind of astrology's rebirth through the theosophical movement, um, and then sort of its merging with psychology, sort of in that middle part of the century. Um, would you say that you discovered astrology um, because of your interest in theosophic type ideas, or were you just studying astrology and you really liked the stuff they wrote? I think it goes back to the weird. You know, um, <laughs> I was interested in astrology, and you know, and as I was, you know, cruising the bookshelf and in Seattle at the local Theosophical Library, which is awesome. The, the Theosophical Library in Seattle is so cool. Um, you know, just the words esoteric and soul uh, and, you know, th these kinds of themes just jumped out at me. So I picked up those kinds of books. Uh, Alan Leo, Alan Oaken, um, Alice Bailey, uh, you know, even um, like Evangeline Adams was one of my first books. Uh, uh, Elizabeth, uh, uh, Isabel Hickey, uh, A Cosmic Science. You know, those were kind of my formative uh, um, people. This is really interesting to me because looking through the presentation, I noticed some names and some terms, esoteric astrology first, and there is a great Theosophical Society in Seattle. By the way, anyone listening, if you live in a city that has a Theosophical Society, they'll have a library. Um, go in, chat with those folks. Really cool organization, and they'll really have a rich set of esoteric books. Also, Seattle has a Steiner house um, with a library, and so I wondered, seeing Rudolf Steiner's name in there, if you really um, kind of, uh, maybe uh, one way to put it is stewed in the local sauces, and that's kind of where your your uh, system or the way in which you approach astrology came from, it sounds to a certain extent like that's the case. You know, I guess I guess it is. Uh, maybe I, I haven't even realized how important the Theosophical Library in Seattle has been to me. Now, I didn't realize, did you say there was a Steiner house in Seattle? Yeah, it's... Um, I'm going to do a terrible job locating where it is. If anyone's interested, Google it, uh, because I've been out of the city uh, for so long now that I'm not going to pinpoint it. But there is one, yeah. Um, you, 
probably really like it. <laughs> okay. Wow. Yeah. I, I definitely need to, to, uh, to look into that. Um, There's, um, Waldorf education is pretty widespread in this area. Um, and I assume there's some kind of an affiliation. It might not be. Um, but just uh, that was my assumption upon seeing it. And we had friends that lived by it, so I drove by it a number of times. Cool. I will definitely check that out. Yeah. Awesome. Um, so let's talk a little bit about um, you and give you some kudos. So OPA, or the Organization for Professional Astrology, has regular retreats, and they're moving towards a system where you can get OPA certified. Uh, so you go to the retreat and you um, take a certain um, area of courses. And then I don't know, is there a test in OPA or you just take the courses in you? There is. There Actually, there's a whole series of, of sort of um, uh, classes and challenges to go through. Uh, there, uh, shoot, I'm not, I'm, it, the, the name of it escapes me, but it's like a, um, a consultation setting with a group of other astrologers. And you move through these um, consultations with other astrologers and it, it gives you really valuable feedback. Um, I bet. Yeah. Um, now I haven't done that. <laughs> so that's on my list to do. But um, but uh, I have seen astrologers come out of that and really really say that it's uh, an amazing process, and it's something that's definitely on my on my horizon. I don't know a ton about the inner workings of OPA, but I do know that the list of astrologers they have on their board and who teach the courses at their retreats is really impressive. Oh yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, yeah, they're amazing. It's all, especially going to the OPA, the, uh, the OPA, um, sort of astrology development program that I went to in October. It was, it was a little daunting. I mean, you're sitting there in front of, you know, these amazing astrologers, uh, you know, Lauren Albandian, Maurice Fernandez, Roy Gillette. Uh, I'm probably forgetting a few, but you know, it's kind of like, oh my God, you know, really, you know, just really seasoned like names in the astrological community. Oh yeah. Yeah. It was intense. Yeah. Super intense. So when you say you were in front of them, um, let, let's flesh that out too. So, um, Julio was selected to speak in front of everyone from a project he did. And then, uh, because he was selected to speak in front of everyone, you're also speaking at Norwalk or the Northwest Astrologic Conference. That's going to happen in May, uh, here in Seattle. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, it was this really amazing opportunity to develop uh, at a week long, kind of like almost like a, a conference or a, a program uh, that was sponsored by OPA. And it was a competition, really. And so you were in front of your peers and presenting your work. Uh, and there were a variety of different um, possibilities. So you could either win, say, a speaking slot or a article in the Mountain Astrologer. Uh, or uh, or cash actually there was a cash prize too so I applied for the speaking position and won a, a speaking slot at Norwalk and then a consideration for a speaking slot at the AA conference in 2020 uh, which will the process for that will will come later um, but yeah so it, it, that was really great I mean an amazing opportunity to get feedback to develop to uh, to share to share some work and to accelerate really you know it was yeah it was amazing quite the feather in your cap but your first uh, speaking gig at a conference will be at really one of the uh, most prestigious conferences of the year with Norwalk I mean yeah it's uh it's a little mind blowing and I cut as you know there are those moments in life where you have to kind of rise up to the occasion where you where you have a story of, of who you were and who you've been, and it doesn't really match what you're doing right now. And it's like time to grow that. And I, I really feel that strongly. I mean, I have like tons of anxiety about this, you know, um, but somebody told me like, it's okay to have butter butterflies. You just want to make them like fly in formation. And so, <laughs> so whenever I'm completely freaking out, I just kind of like try to calm down and say, okay, you know, just do your work, do your diligence and it'll be fine. And so that's where I'm at. I'm noticing a lot of your Uranian themes in that little statement there. Oh, yeah. Um, you know, breaking out of your shell, re-examining yourself, re-emerging. That's all uh, really great uh, Uranus stuff. What, uh, 
I know this is going to get inside baseball here, but what were your transits during that that conference? Because you must have had something going on. Oh yeah, let's see. What was it? Um, okay, was that that was October? Um, I mean, I've just let's see. Pluto conjunct my North Node. Um, that was one. <laughs> That'll shake some things loose. <laughs> um, let's see. Saturn in. Uh, let's see. Where was Saturn? Saturn was a, a beginning to approach my North Node. Um, so it. Uh, oh no no no! Sorry. Saturn conjunct uh, Jupiter. Yeah. Oh yeah. Just really expanding the story of your authority. So we're going to get into it now. <clears throat> I'm going to do my best to let Julio lay out uh, his work. But from what I gathered, what really the foundation of the work is, is about the Saturn cycle and using Saturn to examine people's lives in, in what, by all accounts, is a new way. Um, so let's start at the very beginning. Um, I'd like you to explain Saturn and then a little bit about the Saturn cycle in a person's life. Okay. So Saturn. You know, we know Saturn is a malefic planet uh, in traditional astrology, and that Saturn brings uh, challenges and a crisis to our life. It brings us opportunities for growth. It brings uh, a breakdown and then a, a new structure, a new, a new realm of being. Now, in the realm of soul-level astrology or esoteric astrology, Saturn, through these various crises, is the builder of consciousness. You know, so what happens when you go through something really tough, a really a tough time? You know, you it, it ends up raising your level of awareness. You work through something. You know, it's through these trials that you uh, you're able to overcome challenges and raise your consciousness. You know, and we see this uh, in mythology. So the trials of Hercules, for example, you know, where uh, Hercules is wrestling with the lion, uh, the lion symbolizing our the sun, the, our solar consciousness. You know, and and the the arena itself, the challenge itself, Saturn, uh, and by wrestling with the lion, and uh, and subjugating the lion, you know, he's actually kind of assuming this this solar expansion of consciousness. You know, so we see that in in mythology, um, and then the square itself. If we think of Saturn in relation to a square, which you know, it, or which some people do. Um, we know that squares create outward activity. Squares manifest, and that's one of Saturn's uh, activities as well: is to is to create uh, manifested results. Um, and so, so that's a little bit about Saturn. So about the Saturn cycle, we know that you know when you were born, you have Saturn in a certain position. Seven years later, is you, you encounter your first square. So at around seven years old. That's when you're encountering Saturn, square Saturn. And that moment, uh, I started to become curious about that moment. And it, it's, you know, it's kind of a pivotal moment. It's your first encounter with Saturn. You're seven years old, you're a kid, and boom, you've, you're encountering the world. And this moment when you're seven years old, around there, it's, it's, it's not exactly seven, but you are now uh, stepping out into the world. You're stepping onto the school bus out into the playground with other kids. You're, now it's about uh, the, the realm of learning. From now on, you will be encountering um, a, a socialization process, if that makes sense. And, and so, so it's the development of your mental, emotional, and spiritual body now. And so this is a momentous occasion. Uh, and I started to look at charts around when people were seven years old, uh, actually the transits for it, and I noticed that it lined up really well with their career and vocation, what people ended up doing later in life, and it was kind of astonishing. And so I got really curious about this. Um, let me... Uh, so what you're saying is that <clears throat> that initial square at seven years old, and by the way, as someone who's closely monitoring young kids, that's sort of the age where the light go bulb goes on. You're, you're done with kindergarten, you're heading to first grade, and things are starting to get real. Right, yeah, they are. Um, yeah, the kids start asking why a lot. Like, you know, why is the sky blue? And, you know, why, 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 why? And it's... There's, why do I have to listen to you? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, 
yeah, that moment uh, is um, is uh, an important moment in a in our in our development. And um, let's see, what else can I say about it? I, I would say that um, from an esoteric standpoint, what? So let me bring in some Steiner now. So. Yeah. Can you explain who Rudolf Steiner is, please? Oh, sure thing. So Rudolf Steiner was a, uh, a German philosopher and mystic who lived in the early part of the, uh, the late uh, 19th century, early 20th century. He was a very respected scholar. He was a, a Goethe uh, translator and uh, critic. He also, Goethe, uh, commonly thought of as maybe one of the 10 smartest people ever to live. Right, yes. Uh, he was steeped in, in Goethe and uh, just a very well-respected philosopher. He started to become interested in uh, spiritualism, in theosophy, and, um, and what he called spiritual science, and it was a, a massive scandal. He, uh, it was, yeah, people, it, there was a lot of shock around this, as you can imagine, and, but he persevered, and he, he gave a lot of lectures around spiritualism and developed his own philosophy of what he called spiritual science, which was an investigation into the em empirical knowing of spiritual realms, uh, which sounds really fantastical. But he came up with some great ideas, uh, and his his uh, he he grouped this into a term called anthroposophy. And so, an anthroposophy uh, has a lot of different wings and branches. But one of the outgrowths of anthroposophy is Waldorf schools and Waldorf education, and there are about I think there are about 1,600 Waldorf schools all over the world, and it's just a really successful um, methodology for teaching and for raising really, ho really whole human beings, really holistically trained, you know, human beings who are in touch with their inner being and connected to the to the outer world in a really authentic way. Um, so really I'll, cool. Yeah, yeah, really cool. Um, did you go to a Waldorf school? I wish, <laughs> and I wish that I had the resources to send my kids. I would. It's kind of it was a dream. Yeah, same here. Yep. Um, and so Steiner, uh, so Steiner had developed an idea of of multiple births. So your so one of his ideas that he brought into Waldorf education is that you would tailor the education to specific uh, periods in a child's life, and the first period he called the etheric period. Uh, between birth and seven years old. And um, just as uh, when you are born, you're no longer in, uh, in the womb, after the etheric period, the etheric sheath would uh, fall away and you would finally be born in, in the etheric sense, which is a, a mental, emotional, and spiritual birth. And he, he related that to uh, around seven years old and with the coming in of the change of teeth, and I thought, well, that's really interesting. You know, teeth, uh, Saturn rules teeth and bones. Yeah, no right? kidding. Uh, Saturn rules teeth and bones. You know, uh, seven years old, that's when we hit our first Saturn cycle. And I thought, well, he's, he's talking about an etheric birth, and he's, he's talking about Saturn, really. He doesn't say so directly in, in the literature, but um, I thought that was really curious. And so out of that, I started looking at charts uh, for for when uh, you're about seven years old. And I noticed some striking uh, correlations between that chart and what folks ended up doing with their lives, their mission, um, vocation, and the process of individuation. And I really thought that, uh, well, this was something to look into. So, <clears throat> number one, that's incredible. It's the kind of thing where I don't know how many, uh, if, you, <laughs> if you have a liberal arts degree, if you could ever take one major theme from one part of kind of the canon of liberal education and you could directly apply it to another, you were always getting an A. Like <laughs> that was the stuff that really impressed professors. Uh, and you seem to have done exactly that kind of with esoterica, um, taking Steiner, who is for sure, uh, especially with Waldorf education um, being fun. I mean, to say that Waldorf education is mainstream is only an overstatement because just not enough people know about it. Where there are Waldorf schools, sometimes they're incredibly difficult to get into. And it's sort of the creme de la creme of the community who, who ends up sending their kids there. This isn't, um, 
This is, this is like Montessori cranked up to 20. Um, uh, just in its availability um, and the amount people know about it. So you taking this this esoteric theme and applying it to astrology in a way that I think, you know, with, without having heard any more, I'm just extremely impressed. Uh, just the idea of Saturn teeth, um, applying it directly to Steiner, it being the square, that makes just a ton of sense. Now, you seem to have taken a step further and gone to that Saturn return period. And what, what was your, if you want to talk about the uh, the opposition or whatever, feel free. Um, but I kind of want to get to um, sort of the meat of it at some point. And you decided that, that there was a lot to be learned for the rest of the native's life from that Saturn return chart. Well, so I'm not looking so much at the Saturn return chart, mostly at the Saturn square, uh, the uh, the seven-year chart of Saturn square Saturn, the very first, the very first square. Okay. Okay. And the reason for that is because there's a crystal. You know, what it, what it seems like is there's a, some kind of crystallization of mind that happens at around seven years old. It's that encounter with Saturn. It's a concentration of mind, uh, and we begin to have our first questions about who do I want to be when I grow up? Who am I? Um, I think a better question would would be how do I want to be when I grow up, because you can only be you. But um, but at that age we start asking questions about our vocation for the very first time. They're just it's just the seed of it. But in astrology, we really give a lot of credence to those seeds, those first moments. Um, and so th the first moment that we begin to ask this question, this question about what do I want to do with my life, um, you know, I think it's it relates to that encounter with Saturn when you're around seven years old. The successive squares, there's a, there's a square, uh, or the, sorry, the, the successive um, encounter with Saturn when you're around 14, the opposition, um, and then again when you're 21. They, they're adding context and they're adding capability to what was already begun at age seven. You know, so at 14, Steiner calls it the birth of the astral body. Um, and so you're it's the the birth of your uh, kind of your sexual being and the uh, your ability to relate to others and that would make sense based on the oppositional aspect you know you're really looking at the other in that time you're around 14 years old you're you're suddenly discovering a fascination with the other person that's the opposition i always thought it was extremely interesting in the jewish faith that at 13 they sent traditionally, this isn't the case anymore, but traditionally it was young boys up to the Bema to lecture in front of the entire congregation. And you would be welcomed into the community as an adult. And then you, when everyone got to that opposition, they were part of the community. They had this kind of foundation behind them and underneath them. It was almost, it was planned into the whole system. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah. Did they, did they physically, um, uh, arrange oppositions like during ceremonies or any or anything like that <clears throat> well um so in in earlier times uh, the idea of a of a young jewish man learning hebrew wasn't as um, daunting as it is now because that your whole education would have been done in hebrew you might have spoke the vernacular in the external world but but you were learning in hebrew so that wasn't as big of a deal however you were expected to enter the dialogue of of the the rabbinic um, past. So when, when you went up and read your piece, your, your part of the Torah, then you would lecture on it. And your lecture, you know, was expected to be relevant. It was expected to fit in. You, you were supposed to intellectually enter this very Saturnian tradition. Um, and you are, uh, especially with the teeth, making a great case that, um, that this is physical too. And it sounds like Steiner was also that that sexual maturity coming about just shortly after this period of time is really a marker. Absolutely, yeah, definitely. Boy, this I I I can't think of a more intense opposition than standing in front of a group of your peers or elders and giving a a, a talk or a paper. Uh, <laughs> wow, every one of them fully versed, right? Like, so you're not slipping a pitch by. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's incredible. Incredible coming of age ceremony. Um, yeah, Steiner definitely was what I what I personally love about Steiner's work is it's so practical. 
So he's, he's looking at spiritualism uh, from a very practical lens, like how can we improve our educational processes? What, does the, what do we need as human beings at our various ages in life? Um, you know, at, at, uh, between uh, birth and seven years old, he was adamant that, that uh, children should not be uh, uh, beliefs and systems of thought, mathematics, and language should not be imposed on children, that they should just discover it. That it should be much more of a time of play and discovery uh, and impressions, and that they sh- could be exposed to music, art, and, um, uh, and play. And that would, he actually believed that that built a healthy and strong etheric body, uh, a, a healthy basis for then growing the mental, emotional, and uh, spiritual being. And uh, I have to agree. So, um, how did you get introduced to Steiner? Do you have any interaction with Waldorf schools? Because what you're describing is, from my understanding, how the schools work. And then at seven, you get your teacher, and your whole class is is supposed to, you know, sometimes kids move or whatever, stay together all the way through high school. And you have the same teacher from seven all the way until graduation. So, I don't, I, I actually haven't. I haven't spoken to anyone at Waldorf or a, a Waldorf school. And, you know, I feel like I still have so much research to do, like so much, so much uh, reading to do and research and outreach. Um, you know, what, what happened was, uh, I mean, I really feel blessed to have the Theosophical Society uh, and the, the Quest Bookshop in Seattle. I would go in there and kind of share some ideas. And uh, the, the librarian there would say, you know, you should really check out Rudolf Steiner. And here, you know, here's why. For years, he said that. And I was like, uh, I don't know, it's kind of weird. And, <laughs> or I just didn't know it. And, um, and then finally, I did and, uh, you know, went back. It, if I hadn't been, and I just feel like that was some guidance, you know, if I, if I hadn't had uh, those, those moments, those sort of interventions of, of uh, encouragement, you know, who knows, um, maybe I wouldn't have stumbled on this. So <clears throat> you talked a little bit about looking at a bunch of charts and seeing that pattern from that, um, that leaving that etheric age and then, and then sort of what that person dedicated their life to, even from the standpoint of a career. Do you have any examples you like to use? Yeah, absolutely. Um, let's see. So one sec. So Amelia Earhart is a great example. Um, you know, and it's hard to talk about a birth chart uh, without seeing it, but I think we, I'll give it a shot. Okay. So she has a lot of, you know, she has the sun in Leo uh, conjunct the south node. Uh, and uh, you know, what, Amelia Earhart, she was an aviator. She was a, uh, a pioneer in aviation. She was the first woman to fly solo nonstop across the Atlantic. She, they dubbed her Queen of the Air in, in the press. Um, and she was a member of the National Women's Party and an early supporter of equal uh, the Equal Rights Amendment. And then she uh, she disappeared quite suddenly uh, in 1937 and was never found again on a, a, a transatlantic flight. And in her chart, uh, you know, she she has you know I'm I'm look so what I'm looking for is I'm looking for flight. And. I'm, I'm looking for a testimony of this story of hers, of becoming a aviator, and her chart's problematic for that. You know, her midheaven is, uh, is a, a Capricorn, so, and the ruler of Saturn is in Scorpio uh, in the seventh house. You know, Scorpio's not really known for flight. <laughs> um, she does have some plants in, in general. Almost the opposite. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And then she, her son, her son is, in, uh, is in Leo in the fourth house, conjunct the south node. I mean, that is some, some weight. You know, there's a lot of weight at the bottom of her chart. So uh, Jupiter conjunct Mars, uh, conjunct uh, Mercury in the, in the fifth house. Also, um, the moon, Pluto, Venus, and Neptune in the second. Now, in she air. played rough. What'd you say? She played rough. She did. She did. She was intense. Yeah, she she was she was amazing. I mean, and so th- that was in Gemini. So those pl- the the second house planets are Gemini. So yes, 
some air there. But when you look at her seven-year chart, it's absolutely stunning. So in the, in the seven-year transit chart, you see that her Sun and Saturn are conjunct in the 11th house, along with, uh, not too far away, is Mercury in Aquarius. She has Chiron in Aquarius in the 10th. Uh, just one second. So just to be clear what this seven-year square chart is, you're taking the chart, and I think this is where Meredith and I had some communication uh, breakdowns. It sounded like she was saying it was her you know, the Saturn return chart you were using, but it sounds to me like you're picking the point at which Saturn is exactly at that initial square and then using that chart to make some determinations about the native. Kind of like a solar return chart, but the Saturn square chart. Yeah, it, exactly. So, okay. yeah, and thank you for pointing that out. I'm kind of learning to tell this story, and <laughs> I hope to have it perfect by Norwalk. Um, I, what I use, I use the, the, the natal to transit chart because you, and there's some philosophical reason behind that um, as I, I really think this is a relationship chart in a way. So it's the relationship we have to our higher selves at, at seven years old is that birth of a, of a higher functioning and the birth of our etheric body. And so the body and mind is having a, in a way, a dialogue with the, with the etheric body. They're, they're fused. Um, and so the, the natal to transit chart is the, is the chart to look at, not only because I think so, but because the charts are amazing. Um, and they really bear out uh, extraordinary results. Um, and so in the, yeah, so we're looking at the natal to transit. And let me go back to my, I'm looking at a, I'm looking at a slide here. And so, you know, in that chart, uh, there's a, a stellium in Aquarius and Aquarius is known for flight. Uh, you know, Maurice Fernandez does a brilliant job of explaining uh, Aquarius from this point of view, and that's Aquari Aquarius is about achieving speed, uh, height, velocity, and escape, uh, going higher and higher. And with the Sun conjunct a Saturn and Mercury in the eleventh house, I mean, it's a it's a like a punctuation mark in this uh, in this chart. Um, yeah, so I can, I have a lot of examples. It's really great too. I, I like to think of Aquarius as set, resetting the rules, kind of looking back at uh, Capricorn and saying, those are the rules that are set. Those are the old rules. And then Aquarius, if, if Saturn's the time Lord, then Capricorn's the past. Uh, but the time Lord also um, rules the future. And so I like to look at that Aquarian archetype as sort of someone looking ahead and saying, well, those are the rules. Now someone's got to do the work of putting them in place. And just from our really brief talk about Amelia Earhart saying she was um, this progressive leader for, for women's rights. She attempted to be the first woman to fly around the world. And she's really doing exactly that. And what you're saying is that at that Saturn square chart, you're seeing like a giant stamp right there in that breaking, uh, setting new rules, breaking the boundary spot in her chart, um, just expressing that this is where her life path is taking her. Absolutely, yeah, absolutely. You know, and her her birth chart Saturn is is Scorpio. You know, so uh, Scorpio in the seventh, uh, the ruler of the midheaven. You know, and so I'm looking so. When I see Scorpio, I'm thinking, okay, someone deeply psychological, um, uh, uh, interested in uh, in occult science or mysteries or um, psychological processes, uh, you know, things of that nature. I mean, you could go a million different ways. Uh, you, uh, it's a, a Scorpio is a detective, um, incredible emotionality. But here we have someone who is who seems anyway uh, incredibly detached, incredibly objective and committed to social justice uh, as it was in its time. And uh, you're just very Aquarian. This is an incredibly um, amazing Aquarian mind. So, so then you're looking at that seven year square almost as like a reset. Like this, um, you know, clear, you're obviously always going to have those traits that come in the birth chart at the time that the native was born. But that seven-year chart 
when you start interacting with the world, when Saturn starts getting involved, when, when you're, for lack of a better term, a Saturn, when you start developing some spine, um, that chart is really going to show us um, what that person is and how they're going to um, kind of force their way into the world, for lack of a better term. Yeah, definitely. I, I yeah, your, your natal chart is always with you. You know, it, uh, your natal chart is, uh, you know, your consciousness is organized in in uh, in large part through the, the natal chart. I mean, what I'm, <laughs> I realize what I'm saying here is like really pretty, uh, it's pretty left field. I mean, this, you know, I, I'm, in a way, I'm asserting that there is another birth chart. I mean, it's, it's not a small thing. And um, so, yes. The, the seven year chart is, is, it's almost like a progression. I think of this, I think of this uh, natal transit at seven years chart as uh, similarly to a secondary progression. So you keep the natal chart for sure, but the natal to transit chart at seven years old is showing your process of individuation and growth. It's showing your psycho-spiritual uh, psycho development over time, which is optional. Many people, you know, don't do that. And so, but what I found when I'm looking at charts is extraordinary people who have really taken on their karma, the charts for this uh, show it very dramatically, really, really um, uh, vividly. And, um, and then also when you consult with people, I've used this in consultations, and what's really interesting is, uh, is that the resonance with the etheric Saturn. Because a way that you can overcome your or work on or grow your birth chart Saturn is actually to to invest and nurture etheric Saturn. I call this a prime struggle. So the two Saturns that are interacting in this chart, it's your it's your birth Saturn with your etheric body Saturn and it creates the the, the struggle of your life. Um, I really like that because I definitely um, see in charts uh, where people have uh, squares that is initially a struggle for that person, but oftentimes, if not always, if that person has developed and progressed and grown, that's their strength. You know, that's where their power comes from. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes, <laughs> if, you, if you apply yourself, um, boy, the, the squares are rough. Um, but that is, that is ultimately, if you, when you enter Saturn, when you finally decide, you know, that you're gonna take this on, um, and not shy away from it. When you when you allow Saturn in, then really you can do great things. You know, uh, there's a book called The Greatness of Saturn that comes to mind, and I think that's you know that's what is meant by that. It's owning your karma. Do you remember offhand who wrote that? Oh gosh, let me see if I have. Let me see if I have it. Um, Best part about astrologers I always have a stack of books next to them. Oh, I don't have it with me. Sorry. He probably has 30 other books right next to him. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, uh, are there any other charts you really want to emphasize? Uh, yeah, there is one. Yeah, sure thing. Oh, cool. Let me see. I can either, t I'll let you choose. I can either talk about Bill Gates or Aretha Franklin. Well, I'm taking Aretha. Okay. <laughs> yeah. All right. Um, okay. So... Aretha, um, actually. If you guys haven't seen the movie, The Blues Brothers, by the way, there's a fantastic scene where Aretha Franklin is a short order cook and uh, the Blues Brothers, uh, Dan Aykroyd, and oh, I'm blowing is the name of uh, his co-Blues Brother, but they go <clears throat> to get, I believe it's their, uh, their horn player back and, and it's Aretha's uh, partner. And he's also working in the restaurant. And she comes out from behind. Uh, no, the I'm sorry. The partner's cooking and Aretha's a waitress. And does this amazing musical number. Maybe one of the best in the history of movies. And it's just one tiny part of the Blues Brothers. Anyways, you found it? I think I, I burned some time. <laughs> I found it, yeah. I don't know if I've ever seen Great. that. Okay. So with Aretha Franklin, uh, I'm looking at her Saturn. She has Saturn in Taurus. Uh, and Jupiter in Gemini, and Pluto in uh, in Leo. She's got the North Node in in uh, Virgo, and the South Node in you know Pisces, of course, conjunct Mercury. 
and the sun is in Aries in the fifth house. Okay, so she, so the sun in Aries in the fifth house, that's some play and some creativity for sure, some initiative. Um, but I'm looking for the, wor what, the world's greatest soul singer in her chart. You know, that's really what I'm looking for. I'm looking for the queen of soul because I, that should be obvious. And I don't know that, that I'm seeing it quite so vividly. Uh, her her midheaven is Leo, and uh, she's Leo in the midheaven. And uh, let's see, in, I'm using Placidus, and the fifth house, uh, she has a fifth house son in Aries. And okay, so that's, that's fine. I'd say that, you know, uh, Taurus is related to voice. And, but she has Saturn in Taurus, you know, so I don't know. Does she have a, a beautiful voice? She certainly has a strong voice. Um, the, the chart for when she is seven years old, the natal to transit chart is really stunning. She has the Sun, Mercury, and Pluto conjunct. Actually, she has Pluto partile conjunct uh, Mercury, and the Sun is also very close by in Leo. Saturn and Leo conjunct the midheaven, you know, and she was called the queen of soul. And so the... So we're both smiling wryly because Leo, the king, the sun at home, in his own sign, in the 10th house, she's the queen royalty right on top of her chart. Right. I mean, it's just, it's amazing. It's, the chart is, screams that she's the queen, you know, she's, um, and let me see here. Um, also, you know, she it, it brings this etheric chart. So her etheric Venus uh, goes from Aquarius to Cancer. And she was known for her generosity. It's Cancer in the eighth house. Uh, she was known for, uh, for uh, founding charities and giving anonymously, giving huge sums of money anonymously in this very caring way. And I, and I think that, um, you know, that illustrates that a lot. Um, so, yeah. That's really uh, amazing. Um, and um, so from a traditional uh, look at her chart, if you see the sun in Aries in the fifth, um, and then you see that Leo Midheaven, you have this exalted sun in, in play and creativity ruling that midheaven. So we see someone who, in the place in their chart where they're most visible to the world, has a lot of oomph, a lot of power, and there's going to be some play involved and some hustle involved and some get up and go involved. But to get to where that person has some of this potentiality and then becomes perhaps the greatest R&B singer ever to live, you need to take another step. And, and I'm seeing here that you found that really clearly in this um, seven-year chart, which is really awesome. Thanks. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, it's not that we're saying that the natal chart doesn't tell the story at all, uh, because, but what, but I am saying is that, that I'm looking for an extraordinary chart. I'm looking for extraordinary testimony right. because this is a person who became world famous, who manifested something extraordinary throughout her career, a huge career. One of she'll be known. You know, uh, very few people will be will be remembered out of the 20th century, but Aretha Franklin will. You know, and yeah, and her birth chart um, definitely has a testimony for uh, for that oomph and drive. But the the natal to transit at seven years old chart, I mean, it just tells the story really, really beautifully. Well, that's that's super cool. I think you've provided all the listeners and and maybe some of the even the more seasoned astrologers who check this out another tool for their toolbox, which is amazing. I can't wait for your lecture at Norwalk. Before we wrap up, I just wanted to talk really briefly about um, the, the astrology community in the Pacific Northwest. Do you uh, belong to any organizations in the Seattle area? Do you know a lot of other astrologers around here? Yeah, uh, Seattle is amazing for astrology. Seattle has an incredible uh, uh, astrology community. The, the Washington State Astrological Association is fantastic. I'm a member there. I, you know, I, I there. That's really my home. Uh, Seattle uh, and astrology is my home. Uh, I, I started going to Norwalk. That was those were my first conferences, uh, Washington State Astrological Association. And um, yeah, so if if 
if uh, anyone out there can attend a meeting at WASA, I highly recommend it. It's very welcoming. Um, and definitely NORWAC is a fabulous conference to go to. You'll, you'll meet other astrologers. You meet your tribe, you know. And if you've been on the fence about going to NORWAC and wondering if it'll be fun, it'll definitely be fun. And there's a lot to learn. And uh, so I definitely encourage it. Well, that's fantastic. I am going to NORWAC for the first time this year. UWAC was my first conference. I have not joined the Washington State Astrologers Organization yet, but that ringing endorsement in and of itself, um, <laughs> I'm going to have to get it done. They, they bring in a lot. You should, because they bring in a lot of great astrologers. The one thing about WASA is the, the, the roster of astrologers who speak there is absolutely top-notch. We had, uh, let's see, uh, Richard Tarnas spoke this year. Uh, wow! Yeah, uh, Demetra George is coming next month, so it's incredible. Yeah, really, it's really amazing. Creme de la creme. Uh, well, before we wrap up here, Julio, uh, why don't you tell people how they can find you? Okay, uh, so you can reach me at my website, evolutionastrology.com. I'm also on Facebook, Evolution Astrology there, and uh, where else? On uh, I'm, I'm not as uh, I'm active on Instagram. And uh, yeah, so reach out, ask me any questions that you have. I'm happy to answer questions. And, uh, and uh, yeah, I'm looking forward to, to meeting more people at, uh, at uh, Norwalk in May. Well, thank you very much for coming on, Julio. That was amazing stuff, a new tool in the Astrological Toolbox. As always, we want to thank July Fighter for providing the music before and after the podcast. Please find July Fighter on all those fun places. Keep in mind, the, the Basement Astrologers now has a Patreon page. Uh, if you have the opportunity, please uh, come and support us even at the lowest possible levels. We're hoping to uh, build up uh, some resources so that we can send people like Julio microphones um, so he can be set up before we start instead of us spending 15 minutes getting him squared away. Uh, I hope everyone's enjoying the content thus far this year. We're really excited. We're going to try to get a couple more uh, Norwax specific guests on before the big event. Uh, and thank you all very much. Have a great day.